Time is a flat circle. Is that what he says in Interstellar? I don't know. So Jurassic World Dominion got delayed a year. A year. Had they started pre-production at all? It's been filming since before COVID. Oh, really? It was supposed to come out in the summer of 2021. Now it got delayed till June 2022. Batman's also delayed. Everything's delayed. Dune was delayed. (sighs) A Uh, year, dude. (laughs) A year this week. I have to wait. A whole year. 360-something days. Seeing that trailer in IMAX was a religious experience in itself. Very different feelings from watching it on your screen, Mm -hmm. to be honest, or on your phone. The Pink Floyd song has grown on me. I was kind of unsure how I felt initially when I watched that trailer, but now I think it's perfect. (laughs) If there ever was an IMAX movie, it's going to be freaking Dune. Freaking Dune. Freaking Dune. Oh, man. I'm so sick. So they announced... Yesterday or the day before that closing theaters all theaters are going to be closing again. I think the announcement was for an undetermined amount of time uh, Specific to at least two chains Regal and AMC both in the United States And I think most of Europe because theaters are fine at least in China. I know Because mm. they put the kibosh on that corona pretty fast as you can do in an authoritarian regime. We're getting there Woo! <laughs> but because of that, yeah, we braved the wild outside. We masked up, made sure not to breathe into each other's mouths. Too much. For a, <laughs> for two hours. And we got to see the first film in a theater that we'd seen since probably February. February, yeah. Whenever the United States decided to shut down, so. We went up to the Irvine Spectrum. To the real IMAX theater. Because we're SoCal natives here couple of white guys (laughs) and we went to see christopher nolan's latest film called tenet you may have heard of it yeah (laughs) it was the film that was supposed to bring back the united states economy (laughs) it was supposed to at least save theaters and it sort of failed spectacularly in that regard but it was a heckin good movie to watch in a theater yep especially in imax theater He has made for IMAX. Yeah. No one's ever only always made IMAX movies since Batman. Yeah, so that's one thing we should say off the bat is it specifically is a movie that is made to watch in IMAX theaters. And if you Mm -hmm. are watching it in any other way, you're not seeing how it was intended to be seen. Not to sound pretentious. (laughs) Well, but it's true. But it's true. It's a fact. I like to beat around a bush. So we're going to try to do this without any spoilers. We couldn't spoil it if we tried. (laughs) This movie has been reviewed. Both fans have reviewed it a certain way, and then movie reviewers have reviewed it a certain way. And there's a lot of like specific complaints that I'm hearing. The most glaring one is that there's always a like a Nolan trope in a film, like a gimmick or like a thing that happens that makes it what it is. Yeah. And people were saying that that gimmick or that trope that's in this film overshadows the actual characters and the character development. And then other people have said that the sound mix was difficult to listen to and understand the dialogue. Oftentimes, Nolan's films are mixed very bassy, and they're very score and sound effects driven. Very loud. I've also seen some critiques 
on the pacing of the film from a narrative point of view. Mm. I thought the editing was incredible, but I could see why critiques would be a reflection of the pacing in regards to the narrative, like the script. The last biggest critique of the film is that the plot and the gimmick, the said gimmick that we were referring to, is very hard to understand and follow. They don't exposition that very well. That's another thing. And people say that the whole movie is sort of hard to follow because it's hard to keep track and understand what's going on. That's the last kind of critique. So just keep those in mind because we're going to be trying to address all those critiques as well as giving our own review of the film and our own impressions. Yeah. Let's talk about the cast. You got John David Washington as the literal the protagonist is his title. <laughs> he doesn't even have a name in the film. He's incredible. In fact, it was after the movie, I turned to Gabe and I was like, oh, I don't even know the name of his character. And you were like, yeah, it's because he didn't have one. He's credited as the protagonist. Chris loves giving his leads... Uh, Ambiguous IDs. Yeah. Identification. I think even his first film following, or that was his first feature anyway, it had an unnamed protagonist. So it's funny he's coming all the way back to that point. It's very Christopher Nolan of him to do that. And I think that's fine. He referred to himself as the protagonist half a dozen times in the film, and it, <laughs> it got a little old as it went on, but it's still fine. Yeah. John David Washington, he was great. We'll talk about him in a second. We got Robert Pattinson back again. <laughs> yeah. He's in so many things now. <laughs> I feel like I just watched The Devil All the Time. You did. <laughs> we got Elizabeth Debicki. Yeah, as Catherine, the wife of the Russian oligarch, a satyr. Played by Kenneth Branagh. And what an interesting accent he had. He was great. Yeah, he was great. And then Aaron Taylor Johnson apparently is in this film. The character You actor. might not recognize him. I recognized him pretty fast. If you haven't seen him in a while, you might not recognize him. I'd, I sure didn't. He's in shape. He's got a nice beard in this film. Then we have a lady named Dimple Kapadia, and she played Priya, who is this older Indian gal that helps... Helps unfurl the world of Tenet yeah. to the main character. Then Himesh Patel from uh, the movie Yesterday mm-hmm. has a, a minor role in this film. He does really well. He does such a great American accent, you'd barely recognize him. That guy's going places, I think. Yeah, he's gonna... I could see him easily being the star of Christopher Nolan's next film. Yeah. Because you know how he like, uses background characters and then makes them kind of the foreground characters? Yeah. He basically played the same role as the other guy. A lot of these characters feel like Inception characters, and yeah. there was a similar role in Inception. So, a couple things coming out of the film last night. Initial reaction? My initial take from last night as soon as I left was, and this is to address the critique that it was hard to understand, it wasn't that difficult for me to understand, but I also feel personally like my mind is as jumbled as the exposition in this film is, and so I understood it perfectly. Your mind works in a non-linear way. <laughs> yeah. And you have high IQ. They're just like... <laughs> there was only at one point I turned to Gabe and I was like, do you understand what their motivation is right here? <laughs> I think your exact wording was, do you know what they're doing going to this place? And yeah. I looked at you and I sort of nodded and you looked at me again and I said, I have no idea. <laughs> that was early in the film. Yeah, that was funny. But once we got past that point, I understood the rest of the film pretty easily. And so I, if, you're tr- if you're watching and you're listening and you're not on your phone or you're not distracted or your mind's not wandering, you're going to be able to understand this film, I think. I think it was you that said Christopher Nolan tries to create these tones or these things that you don't really need to understand the dialogue as much. Yeah, that's sort of a discussion itself, Mm -hmm. uh, which is another facet of why he does the sound mixing this way. But he creates films, and it's funny, he actually had a line in this film from a scientist character 
played by Clemens Posey, I think. Yeah. She said something along the lines of what Christopher Nolan's entire mantra is at this point in his life in filmmaking, which is you don't really need to understand what's going on. You just need to feel it mm -hmm. and sort of experience it, mm -hmm. which, you know, frustrates a lot of people sometimes who like to know exactly what's going on at every moment. And... And there's, you know, justification there, but... Yeah, and I think Christopher Nolan does a good job in his films making them so that they could be felt. And felt again. And felt multiple times. But he also is smart enough to write a comprehensive screenplay to where if you needed the detail and you were to sit down, like you said, with the subtitles, you'd be able to understand and track with what's happening. Mm -hmm. But to your point, this is a phone-in-your-other-room sort of film, I think. It is and it isn't. It's marketed and plays as a big action-adventure film. You know, the catchphrase for this film, especially because of COVID, was big movies are back. Mm -hmm. And it definitely is a big movie. There was one point when I thought the film was wrapping up, and then it was like, we're about to do this thing where the film's going to keep going, <laughs> and this is just halfway. This is the actual climax. This is the halfway point. And I was like, oh my gosh, that makes total sense. And at the same time, it was super fun for me to experience in the theater watching it. Yeah, this is the quintessential blockbuster, or at least Nolan's take on it. And it felt like a Bond film in many ways for that reason. And it's funny because Nolan has been linked to direct a Bond film here and there. And I think that this was kind of his answer to that. Yeah, he's like, I'll do my own Bond. Yeah. <laughs> we'll call it James Protagonist. <laughs> <laughs> protagonist bond and then so the sound mix the sound mix for me was fine again i love sound and sound design so to me i i loved everything about it i could hear every line of dialogue just fine that was not an issue for me i know a lot of people were saying this movie in particular is very hard to understand and i disagree with those maybe you were in a bad theater in an imax theater where it's meant to be heard it sounded great what did you think I had a little bit of an issue with it. My ears aren't as keen as yours, if that's a fair adjective to use. I do think you have an exceptionally good ear for sound in terms of picking it apart and figuring out what's being played to you. Most people... Thanks, man. Yeah. I appreciate that. I don't know if it's just because your background in music, but I think you might just naturally have a good ear as well. But I do not, and I probably couldn't understand a good 25% of the film's dialogue. And for very exposition laden film like this probably the most heavy of nolan's films in general and that's saying something considering mm -hmm. he did inception yeah most of his films are this way super bassy very bass forward but that's also to talk about one of the reasons i liked the sound mix so much was because the score was incredible yeah i left this movie going that i don't do this a lot with scores from films that is a an original soundtrack that i would love to listen to as just music in my car, you yeah. know? I, I played it right after we saw it on Spotify on my drive home, mm -hmm. and it's just as good as it was. It's reminding me sort of of, like, the Tron score at yeah. certain times. It's got that sort of, like, Daft Punk edge to it. It was very synth-heavy. It still had that Nolan's Hans Zimmer yeah, yeah. quality to it with that, a lot of the percussion. Constant, like, progressing and that ticking yeah. and that movement forward. But it had also the retro synth feel to it. Yes. And a lot of... And in surprising ways. Like, it, yeah. it never went there to make it feel like an 80s film or something. It was just done just enough to be sort of catchy mm -hmm. and be a unique score. It was unique music. It didn't just propel the scenes forward. It enhanced the scene. Yeah. Through the music. In a way that I haven't heard a Hans Zimmer in a score of a Nolan film do in a while. So, yeah. <laughs> so true. this guy's name, his name is Ludwig Goranson. You may be familiar with his... Goranson? ...work on The Mandalorian. 
Yeah, he's done Mandalorian. He did Black Panther. And he does a ton of music production with, and you could tell from his Black Panther work, he works with a lot of those artists normally. Yeah, he did the Creed films. He's worked with John Legend, so that says a lot. He probably worked on the Travis Scott track that ends the film. Uh, And for the credit sequence, at the end of the soundtrack, there's a Travis Scott track. That was funny. I almost said during that track as we were walking out that I'm pretty sure this rapper is saying nothing. That's modern day mumble rap. (laughs) You can't understand a word of what he's saying. Yeah, but it sounded good. You just can't understand it. Yeah. Speaking about Nolan. Yeah. That was the only time in the film that I thought you couldn't understand what a person was saying. Yeah. You're right, though, about the soundtrack. And I would just add to that to say, I agree. I think it's such a standout soundtrack for me because it both has this incredibly unique style and it's sort of its own character in a way, but it also supports these scenes in ways that I'm not familiar with in a Nolan film. And I was just going to use the instance of when John David Washington's character first meets Robert Pattinson's character, there's this really nice, just very soft synth pad that's playing underneath it. And I had never seen anything like that in a Nolan picture. And I just thought that was very... And in some of the more somber scenes, for instance, there have been moments in Nolan films before, like in Inception, where it's a very sad, emotional scene, but this just sounded completely unique and new and fresh. And so I thought it was exciting that Nolan's playing with some different tones, I guess you could say, by the people he's using to help him make his movies. Yeah, for me, it enhanced this movie to a level that made a what would otherwise have or normally be a classic sort of quote-unquote Nolan film and kind of enhanced it to the level of where a Nolan film feels new. Mm -hmm. And I got excited about the future of Nolan films because of the advancement of the music, at least. And even though the font's the same, like, and during the credits roll, the font is the same as every other Christopher Nolan film. It's still the most Nolan film ever made. (laughs) Yeah, and that was, I guess, another critique is that people are saying that it was so Nolan that it was both good and bad like self-indulgent in a way yeah which i guess we should talk about the trope or the gimmick so the gimmick or the concept in this film we're not going to reveal it for you but there is a thing much like an inception they sell it in the trailer but they do sell it in the trailer but you still don't really understand what it is yeah you don't um until you have it explained to you don't try to understand it just feel it (laughs) haha The gimmick or the concept in this, much like in Inception, you know, in Inception you have this whole idea of a dream inside of a dream and you can create these landscapes and sort of project people into those dream landscapes that you create. There's a thing in this film, there's a gimmick. But this film makes Inception look like a children's film (laughs) in terms of complexity, I think. At least that's, that would be my position, because it's very obscure. The, even the characters are in the dark. I think this movie, when Christopher Nolan was coming up with the concept, I think it probably started with that gimmick. Like, he probably came up with that idea. Yeah. And then started to write the script around that. So I do feel like that sort of holds true, as far as the characters getting lost in the gimmick. Actually, Ali reminded me of something last night because Ali also saw it with us. She reminded me of something last night that there was this term that was coined by Spike Lee in 2001. And I, I can't say it out loud because it's inappropriate, but it's it's the magical N-word. Oh. And it's an actual term in film where you have a black character 
usually a man, and it's often androgynous, where he has this magical sort of element and everything he does and comes up against, he usually perseveres or he guides other characters, often white, to the path that they're supposed to be going to. Hmm. And oftentimes don't really have much of a character arc because of that, because they're so good at what they do. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they need to be using magic. It just means they have a magical quality to them. Is that sort of role usually a main character, though, like in this film? It isn't always a main character, but it can be. And I think in this case, you have this character. And in this particular Nolan film, he doesn't really have a flaw. He's overconfident in every situation he goes into. And he backs it up with uh, action like, and and lip service he he has he's very charismatic <laughs> he has more john david washington's character in this film has more lip service than any other character in any other nolan film i've ever seen maybe apart from the joker but john david washington plays it off as sort of cocky and he never really has any adversity in this film and so one of the critiques that i was hearing is that you couldn't really empathize with his character much or understand his motives behind why he was doing what he was doing. And so this is my critique, is really that I don't think it's because of the gimmick that you lose John David Washington's character, the empathy or understanding or motivations behind his character, but it's because of John David Washington's character that he lacked that major flaw that most main characters in stories have as protagonists, much like the magical black person character term that I was talking about. But I'm not saying John David Washington's character was that magical character, but it's just an interesting thing to look at and note that John David Washington's character could fit the definition of that term and uh, what it means. But again, I'm not saying that he is that magical character, but just has some similarities with that term, with the definition of that term. And you guys can look up the phrase if you want, on, you can Google it, but it's just interesting to note. And, and I'm not saying that Nolan specifically meant to do that. I just think that that's how this story came out. It, that's an interesting idea because that character could have easily been white and and it wouldn't have changed anything. That's what I'm saying. Right. But I do think that this character, regardless of his color, is... Kind of a Gary Stu. <laughs> yeah. As they say. And Mary Sue. Yeah. Yeah. I, I also... Funny. I felt that in a slightly different way. This film, to me, and I've corroborated this idea with other people, no one films, thinking about films like Interstellar and Inception his Batman work, they all, even prestige, they always have an emotional core to them, despite however you feel about the way it's executed. Dunkirk was a little different because it was just sort of a, almost like a one-shot war story where all these events were happening in a very short amount of time. So it was a little unique in that way. But Tenant felt a little cold in that way. Like the character, like you said, that's one side of it is that he's never really, like he never really fails. He never really is tried and has to persevere. But the way I was thinking of it is he never has something that he's able to lose other than, you know, like there is a thing at a certain point, but I, I think about other films that Nolan's done where these characters have history mm -hmm. with people that they're losing or something or whatever the struggle is. And that immediately endears you to the main character. And as, as great as John David Washington was in every regard, and he's so charismatic, I hope to see so much more of him in the future. I never felt like, I was emotionally resonating with that character because he's just like, he was a super spy. He was a Bond because he's just the protagonist. He doesn't even have a 
fucking name. Yeah. But that's why I'm glad they had, you know, a character like the person Elizabeth Debicki played. And she was the emotional core of the film, her relationship with her son. 100%. And even her relationship with Kenneth Branagh's character that was fleshed out towards the end. This was a story that, for me, one of the things I immediately took away from leaving the theater, and why it's not immediately my favorite Nolan film ever made, is because it didn't really have that emotional core or that heart for me that a lot of Nolan's other films have that sort of balance out his tactical exposition heavy films very plot laden and very well thought out is as every film he makes is those films all had a balance with the characters and for this it was a little more hollow for me not that I'm like ragging on the film yeah I still enjoyed it but that's just in comparing it to his previous work that's where I was at I totally understand what you're saying and I validate you in that way thanks man but (laughs) Yeah, Ali and I also had that conversation last night in the car on the ride home. We had a hard time understanding where the motivations for John David Washington's character were coming from. And so we toyed with a lot of those ideas that you were just describing. Man just loves his country, so it's fine. Yeah. don't know Elizabeth Debicki you might have seen her in she was just in Widows last year yeah she was in the movie Widows Uh, she was the gold woman in Guardians of the Galaxy 2 oh yeah and then she was also in The Great Gatsby the more recent one with Leonardo DiCaprio and Tobey Maguire yeah that was I think that was her first big film maybe yeah gonna say a couple things one is that in classic Christopher Nolan fair amazing practical effects throughout the film which is saying something considering this is probably the most ambitious film maybe not because interstellar he was strapping imax cameras to spaceships or something or aircraft which is also insane but in this film outside of crashing an airplane they had to work a lot of the time in reverse part of the gimmick is moving backwards and manipulating the camera and the actors in such a way that it is communicated not only clearly but in a very interesting way visually and they did such a nice job john david washington did a lot of his own stunts as well for the film. He has has an incredibly raw physicality to him, and he just jumped at the opportunity to do a lot of that work himself. So props to him. It really came through. And yeah, the movement just really stood out to me. The choreography of all the stunt people, and then the cinematography, just making sure these shots look good when they're played back. Like when the boat's sailing across a body of water and you see the waves just, it's so fluid to see that footage run back. And maybe that's just part of the medium of all this IMAX work, but it really looked good on screen. Amazing, honestly. Yeah. it's uh, Nothing stood out as CGI to me. It's one of those, 100%. It's one of those amazing shots where it, oftentimes they're just framed very well and the color palette that you're seeing and especially in IMAX you're seeing it take up the full capacity of the screen from top to bottom is shot in 1570 not 570 like a lot of other IMAX films are shot meaning that it has more height to it Mm-hmm. And they're just beautiful to look at, even if they're in reverse. You're seeing beautiful imagery shot on film that you don't get with a lot of other films. Yeah, I think from a strictly technical point of view, this is Christopher Nolan's best work. He just keeps getting better every film he makes with his cinematographers and his crew that he brings back. Yeah, I wanted to shout out, actually, I forgot, Hoyt Van Hoytema, I think. Something shit. like that. And he shot Interstellar and Dunkirk with him, right? 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he's not only done that. I kind of chuckled when I went back and remembered, but he also shot Spectre, which was a, a Bond film. Yes. And so he, this, <laughs> he did very well. That was a gorgeous film, despite other aspects of the film that brought it down. The first film I'd ever seen him shoot, what put Hoyt Van Hoytema on my radar, is the movie Her with Joaquin Phoenix. If you turn off the sound in that film, the movie's beautiful to look at. The color palettes are amazing. A lot of pink, a lot of pastel colors. Anyway, big shout out to him. He did a great job. Last movie he shot before Tenet was Ad Astra. Coming off of Interstellar, Ad Astra was a gorgeous film as well. I also want to shout out Nolan's editor, Jennifer Lame. And she edited, I think it was Marriage Story. It was one of the films we did for that Oscar buzz earlier in the year. I mentioned the editing earlier and how even though the pacing for this film was incredibly fast and frenetic and some people didn't appreciate that, I thought the editing complemented that and only made it better. There were several sequences in the film where they do the Nolan thing where they cut back to a moment in your past that was very meaningful just for a split second. And I think Jennifer did a great job working with Nolan on it. I don't know how many of you guys know this, but we work... At a company. We work, well, we work at a company, but that company is... We make IMAX films here. So we often have a, a little bit of insight into the giant screen or IMAX world. In or whenever we edit films, we often try to hold on pictures a little bit longer because the screens are so big. And so I think in the editing and the pacing for these Nolan films, he doesn't necessarily adhere to that where he's holding on shots longer, but he definitely does sometimes where he does it in the right moments and then also knows how to film and edit action into a scene to make it still be appealing in an IMAX theater, which is really nice. Mm I was just gonna, I was gonna ask you a question. I know you wanted to ask me a question. I was just gonna ask you how you felt about the climax of the film. You know, you have the big action set piece to end the movie, and uh, I was just curious how you felt about the ending. It's great. Yeah. Um, how did you feel about like the clarity of what was going on, not just narrative-wise, but you mean the setup? Yeah. Of like that of how that whole thing transpired. Yeah. It was fine. It was good. Did you I, not? Did you not understand that? I understood it, but I was a little unsure in terms of the way it was shot. It was a little unclear, like who we were shooting at half the time. Yeah. I don't. Know. The rest of the film felt like almost a different people had worked on it for me. I was kind of hoping they did the film to sort of bring the whole idea all the way around, uh, but it had this different big action set piece, which was blockbustery and exciting. But it didn't resonate with me as much. I didn't have a problem with that. I think if it would have gone full circle, because at one point I thought it was going to do that, that that would have been too gimmicky for this film. Be a little much. I think it would be a little bit, yeah, too much. That's fair. A little bit of the dialogue was stilted for me. I think we talked about that already, though. You looked over to me a couple times in the film when there was a line that was just like, all right, yeah, we didn't need to have that. I was going to say, one of the worst things about this film, which there aren't many for me, one of the worst things was the actual dialogue writing, which Gabe sort of talked about already, where John David Washington refers to himself as the protagonist on multiple accounts and it becomes like what are you actually saying why are you saying that there were a couple scenes of exposition i am the villain of this story (laughs) yeah there was that there were also a couple moments one of which was when john david washington was sort of being explained to how this whole system works to that scientist character i mentioned clemens posey she's like i can't explain it (laughs) 
There's something like that. That was another thing that was frustrating about the dialogue was oftentimes this happened multiple times and, and uh, you've seen it twice now. So you can, cause he not only saw it last night, but he went and watched it again this morning before he recorded. This. I needed to, <laughs> <laughs> but there are multiple occasions where John David Washington learned a piece of information and then the very next scene or one of the very next scenes, he would reiterate that piece of information to a new character. And it was it was redundant for the audience, but new information for the characters. But in my opinion, was just bad writing. That's one of those things, I think, that became a little self-indulgent. Maybe it's just no one sort of making, sort like of what? <laughs> burrowing into his own style. You're like, wait a second. That was really cheesy and stupid. Pretty on the nose. Yeah. But that's where I'm... That, idea of like this is a bit nolan for me well i think some people were saying one of the detriments of the screenplay like of the actual script writing and the dialogue in this movie in particular was that christopher nolan wrote this film alone he didn't have any like co-writer that wrote it with him he was credited as the sole writer and i'm just saying just throwing this out there he might not be the best writer for dialogue he might be (laughs) he might be a great screenwriter for a film in its entirety and and putting all these scenes together and having it progress along but for dialogue he might not be that good it definitely helps to have another person to balance you out i mean i'm sure he had that every studio would have to be reading the scripts to actually green light it and give him money to do it but and all these things are critiques we had but we still thoroughly enjoyed watching the film yeah that's my last question is uh, where does it rank for you in Nolan films? Uh, like, what's your top Nolan film? Then down to this film. Honestly, this feels and it's hard because he's he's only done like nine or ten films in his career, I think, uh, and all of them are most of them are pretty good. Mainly for the reason I stated earlier, just in terms of the comparatively speaking, the lack of the emotional core of the film probably puts it in the bottom half for me. But it's like saying. Oh, you know, this isn't the best donut that was made today, but it's still a donut that was made today. So it's it's so good. And I thoroughly enjoyed it, but it just wasn't top half Nolan for me. Mm. That's where I'm coming from. And I think with repeat viewings, it'll only go up for me. I Like I said, I told you before we started recording, watching it a second time made me like it more. And because not only was I watching a story that is meant to be watched again because of the nature of the gimmick, but also, you know, things like the dialogue being a little difficult to hear you start to put more of those pieces together on repeat viewings. And I think that's part of what I enjoy about films is every time you watch it, you not only develop those ideas in your head, but you're learning new things too, or connecting things you didn't notice before. So I think it'll only rank higher for me as time goes on. But initially, it's it feels uh, like it's not one of my more favorite Nolan films. So was this better or worse than Inception? Just curious. Uh, for me, in your, yeah, in your opinion, this is this is stark contrast with what you're gonna say. But for me, I, I'd prefer Inception at this point. And again, that just is mostly because of if I had to pick one thing that made it so, it's Leonardo's character's relationship with his wife that made that film for me. And the way that plays out over the course of the story versus John David Washington in this film not having that. Not just foil, but that emotional depth, that character you could play off of in that way. And Elizabeth Debicki was sort of the stand-in. That's why I would, I would take Inception over Tenet in this way. For me, this film falls into my fourth favorite Christopher Nolan film. It's very high up there for me. I enjoyed it a lot. I could see myself watching it many, many times. For sure. And really, not just because of the story, because there's not much of a story, but... <laughs> but more so because of the filmmaking and how pretty it is and how cool it is to watch. And once you know what's happening, you can enjoy it more, I think. Mm-hmm. I think that speaks to what you were saying. Yeah. So for me, it would be Interstellar, Dark Knight, Batman Begins, and then this movie, Tenet. 
Because Steven hates Inception. Is, is it your least favorite? Let me just say the reason I don't like Inception was because most of the movie is exposition. If you watch it, try to prove me wrong, and I'll debate this with you. <laughs> but it's it's about 80 to 85% exposition, meaning that it's it's explaining the gimmick or the thing throughout the whole time. It's constantly explaining itself. This movie did not do that. It more so told you that there was a thing, and then the character has to figure it out the rest of the way. So it's not constantly explaining itself or explaining the gimmick to make it cool. It was more interesting to watch a character try to figure out the world rather than having someone explain it to you the whole time. Mm. Because literally Inception is that. It's characters explaining the trope, like the gimmick, the whole time. And it just becomes very exhausting and annoying to the point where at the end you're like, okay, the whole point of explaining all that was to see the finale scene for about 15 to 20 minutes and then the movie ends. But for me, when Inception ended, it felt like it was just beginning. Like I would have liked to see what happens after all that. Inception 2. Yeah. This felt like it could be in the same universe as Inception. Yeah, very easily. But I liked this film a lot more and the gimmick a lot more and the fact that it wasn't explaining itself the whole time. It had moments of explanation, of exposition, Mm -hmm. but it just... uh, yeah. It balanced it better, a lot better than Inception did. Inception, for that reason, is very low to me. Um, Prestige is higher than Inception. I would say... Every, yeah, Prestige think, is so underrated. <laughs> or at least under, you know, talked about. I think every film, honestly, is higher than Inception for me. Yeah. maybe Be- it, Because of that. Because I think it's... I mean, no offense to Inception lovers, because I know there's a lot of them, but I think it's poorly written. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a soft, I have a pretty soft spot in my heart for Inception. Uh, I think just one of the reasons I liked it a little bit more is because it was a little slower. Even the talkie scenes didn't bother me as much. I was younger when I saw it too, so maybe that's part of it. I haven't watched it in a, in a while. Maybe I should watch it again and see if my opinion changes. Also, as a teenager, you're like, oh, the dream world is incredible. I love it. I could see this winning an Oscar for visual effects. Yeah. And effects because... Not sound design. <laughs> <laughs> because the effects... And the filmmaking behind the effect in this film is so fascinating to watch and how they pulled it off. I think they could win some awards for it. Maybe score. Ludwig's score was phenomenal. This will be a movie that I enjoy for a long time. This will also be the only film that really came out between February and 20, next year, 2021. Yeah, how, how good was it to actually be in an IMAX theater again? It felt so good. I uh, was on Instagram and I saw Laura Dern's post of Jurassic World Dominion being pushed to June 2022 and I was like, I never comment on Laura Dern's Instagram, but I like commented and I was like, two years? Between that and Spider-Man, they just keep giving you the blue balls, huh? It's just, there's no rest for Steven. So sad, so forlorn. Forlorn? Dune is the one for me that just kills me. Another year. We have more time. Why a year? We have more time. The movie's done. It's waiting there. Because there's a reason. And it's because COVID's not even expected to be over until halfway through the next year. That's true. Also, it needs to do well or we won't get part two, which would be the actual nail in my coffin, metaphorically speaking. I'll nail your coffin. This is the end of the podcast. (laughs) This has been the Cult Popcast.